Good day to you, and welcome to the NPFCC Messages podcast. We're glad to have you back. Or if you're listening for the first time, thank you for checking us out. This week's podcast is a message from our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Throughout this series, we're going to examine just how critical the message of the gospel is for the church. And while this may seem obvious to some, the truth is it's easy to get distracted by the noise and the trends of this world and forget what's most important. So these messages aim to draw us towards keeping the gospel first in our lives and in the church. So be blessed as you listen to this word. Hey, uh, thank you for being here this morning, whether you're here in a seat or here with us online. We're grateful to be with you. Glad that you take some time to be with us this morning. Hey, um, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 2 this week. If you need a Bible, there's always Bibles around. If you need to take one home, please do. We are all about um, all about the Bible, and so we want you to have those. We want you to be open, have, um, have those open, and we want to learn and grow together. Um, last week, we began a journey through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor whose name was Timothy. And he was sent there, he was sent to Ephesus to stabilize the church there. Uh, the city of Ephesus, as we discovered last week, was a very wealthy city, also a very pagan city. It was the melting pot of religious beliefs as a big port city in the Roman Empire. It was a place where thoughts and ideas from everywhere came together and and people just had all kinds of different stuff that they worshipped. But the main, um, the main religion in the town of Ephesus was the worship of the goddess Artemis. And Artemis was um, the goddess of fertility. We kind of showed you last week what, she, what uh, the, the idol that, the, she sim- that symbolized her. Um, but she was also seen as the goddess of life, right? Fertility would be life, but also of death. And so she, uh, they, they thought, hey, Artemis had life and death kind of in, in her hands. And so Paul sent Timothy there to straighten out some things um, because the church there had allowed there to seep in um, some, some cultural and religious mixes with the Christian faith. Paul tells Timothy to command certain people in the church to stop preaching false or polluted gospels and to anchor the church there in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth. And so Paul reminded Timothy... Um, uh, the core of the gospel in chapter 1. We, we talked about this. It was the center of our, our study last week in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he tags on, of whom I am the worst. Uh, how many of you feel, have felt like that before? I am the worst sinner, right? But here's the great news is that Jesus Christ came. He came to save sinners. So if you're a sinner, and how many of you are? Yeah, see, look around the room. We're all together in this, right? If we're sin, yes, Christ came so that he could save us. And so then Paul, he, he shares his own testimony. That he, even though, and we highlighted that like last week, even though he persecuted the church, killed Christians, Christ saved him and saved him so that he could take the message of Jesus to the rest of the world. And so, um, now today we're going to dive into chapter 2, where Paul begins to tell Timothy how to build a gospel-shaped church, and how behavior in the church should happen. A church that is anchored in the gospel, and that can stand against false teachings and cultural pressures of the day. And so I think, again, we need to hear some of these things today. So, um, we're going to, as we're doing each week, we're going to read through uh, the text. And so, um, if you would uh, join me, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word from Timothy chapter 2. We just, we do that just out of respect for God's Word. The rest of it is, uh, is kind of commentary, but this is actually God's Word. So, um, let's read this together. It says, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all people, 
This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for what you want to teach us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. Father, be with uh, the words that come out of my mouth, Father, and do what only you can do and help us to hear what you want us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I told you last week, we go through books of the Bible and it helps us not avoid the hard passages. And uh, isn't th- this will be a fun one this morning. Here's one thing I know for sure. Nobody out there wants to be me right now. <laughs> Thank you. Always pray for the pastor, right? Um, <laughs> no, I really do covet your prayers. First, let me say that here at Newberry Park First Christian Church, we are committed to the Bible. We believe it is the word of God. It is truth. And it is authority. We, it is the authority for our faith and for practice. And I want you to know that, that I struggle. I struggle with Scripture. And I mean, I struggle with it, with what it says, and I wrestle with it. And I think we should. Um, it oftentimes <laughs> offends me and tells me that I am a sinful man, that I cannot fix things on my own, and I am completely dependent on Jesus, um, who is my Savior. It constantly tells me things that I don't want to hear. It challenges me to apply its truth in a world that does not always want to hear it and is oftentimes hostile towards it. As a pastor, it's hard being a human who struggles with fixing things, and I joke about that a lot, but it really is true. But also, with pleasing people, you know, everybody wants to please everybody, but you just, it's impossible. In order to be true to the scripture, I always know that if I do it right, someone will be offended. And if I can be honest this morning, as I've, I mean, I have labored over this passage. And I, I, to be honest, especially, you know, after the pandemic, I think I have maybe a teeny bit of PTSD this morning because I know that for some people in the room, what I share might not be progressive enough, and for others it won't be conservative enough, but I'm not attempting to walk a line down the middle. I don't want to walk down the middle. I want to stand firmly on God's word wherever that takes us. But I believe also that we don't have to be divided over these things. I believe that many of the issues that oftentimes divide us are not issues that should divide us, but issues that we should wrestle with together, that we should learn and grow together with. And so I believe that we need to continue to wrestle. So uh, a quote I heard this week, and I, I just thought it was, it just really hit me because of what I was studying. It says, people love it when you tell them the truth until you tell them a truth that they just don't love. Right? And that's me, oftentimes. I mean, I, I love it, but then, I, you know, I hear something, and I'm like, well, I don't know if I really like that. But, but to be honest, uh, I'm just quite honestly more afraid to get the message of Scripture wrong than I am in making somebody upset. Of course, I don't want to do things that are upsetting, and I don't want to push people away. But we have to study Scripture and do justice to it. And as I study scripture, I'm always challenged. And usually I walk away with more questions than answers. And on this topic especially, I mean, there's so much out there. It's really uh, the the last just few verses of this chapter are some of the most hotly contested um, 
uh, passages in the whole Bible, and there's stuff coming out all the time. It's hard to keep up. I, I, I actually got more books on this topic than, than I've gotten on a topic in a long time, and I can't even read all of them, right? It's just like almost impossible, but you just keep working at it and keep working at it, and I hope you'll keep working because this is a way that we sharpen our faith, that we continue to grow, and I hope that you'll do that with me. Um, and... Um, the other part is, it is impossible. I mean, it is vital that we understand that we cannot rightly understand God's truth if we take a look at all of this through a cultural, political, or philosophical lens that, um, of what we want things to say. It is impossible to do the will of God also without knowing the word of God, so we want to dive in to it together. So again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to Timothy on how to lead a church, how to develop a gospel-shaped, gospel-centered church. Now, if you were giving a new pastor some some um, good advice on how he should lead the church, what would you tell him, this is the thing you got to do first, right? This is what you have to do first. I mean, is it, you know, you got to have great preaching? Is it that you have to have awesome worship? Is it that you need really amazing kids and students programs? Is it that you need really good coffee, right? And I, could, I would contend that, okay, we're checking the boxes here, right? I think MPFCC checks a lot of these boxes. And so, but listen to what Paul tells Timothy is the top priority. He says this, he says, first of all, I, I urge you then, first of all. So in other words, this is, this is first, right? This, this is what I want you to know first. That petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. That is what comes first. If you want to build a church, if you want to grow a gospel-shaped church, that's what comes first. That we pray, we petition, we intercede, we thank God in prayer, and we pray for all people. Of course, then he goes on and says, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. A gospel-shaped church, I think, is a church that prays. And I think this is really important for us. It's a church that prays. Prayer is where the real power is. Paul gives us these four places, petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. I mean, don't forget to say thank you for all that God does. But then it gets harder, right? Um, It says, pray for kings and all those in authority. I know some of us struggle there. I know sometimes I do. I have to tell myself I need to do that regularly. I mean, and when it says you have to pray for the kings and the authorities, right? It says all God's people said, do I have to? And the answer is yes, because the Bible says, like, this is the way we should conduct ourselves. This had to have been really hard for Timothy to hear. It also had to have been really hard for Paul to write. Because the guy who was sitting on the seat of authority, the guy who was the Caesar in Rome at the moment was a crazy guy named Nero who loved to dip Christians in tar and burn them in his garden. I mean, that's how, what, what a kind of psycho guy this was. And he was the guy in, th- in authority. And Paul knows this. Paul had already been in prison once. And, and he's saying, hey, pray for those who are in authority. I mean, we thought it was bad enough to, you know, pray for our leaders during the pandemic, right? I mean, this guy knows that there's a guy out there burning Christians and still pray for the king, pray for those in authority. And and it's not just a nice idea. This is a command of God to us. Elsewhere in Scripture, it tells us, pray for those who persecute you, right? And we have to be people who will pray for our enemies and the people who will show love even to people who we don't agree with, or who persecute us. If we truly understood the power of prayer, if we really believed that it would change things, it had the power to, to see God's will be done, I think we would pray more. A story that I heard this week at the conference I was at that I thought was really good. I'd, I'd heard it before, but it was about a, a, a church that was getting sued. Um, there was a lawsuit against a church, and the lawsuit came from a bar that was right down the street. The bar was growing, and they wanted to expand, and so they started to do kind of like a room, uh, like an addition onto the bar so they could have more people come. And um, when that happened, 
uh, the church went into full court press and said, hey, we don't want the bar here. We don't want the bar to expand. So we're just going to, we're just going to sign petitions and start prayer meetings. We're going to pray against this thing. And they just started praying and praying and they, all these things, you know, walking and praying around the place and doing those things that, you know, sometimes Christians do. And they're just praying and they're petitioning and all these things. And then, uh, two weeks before, um, it was finished, a lightning storm came up, struck the bar, and burned the place to the ground. As you can imagine, a bunch of the Christians were like, see? <laughs> right? Well, a couple, uh, about a month goes by, and they, they, get a, um, they get a thing in the mail that they're being sued by the bar owner. And the bar owner says, hey, that um, the church is ultimately responsible for all this, for the demise of the building through direct actions and indirect means, is what it said. And of course, the church vehemently denies all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise. The judge, he goes back and he reads carefully all of the complaints and the defendant's reply and all those things. And then he opened the hearing by saying, I don't really know how this is going to go. All I know is what it appears from the paperwork that here I have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a church that doesn't. <laughs> now here's the question this morning. Do you believe? I mean, do you really believe in the power of prayer? Because here's the thing. Your words sound great, but what you do week in and week out might betray you. If we're not actively in prayer, then, then we would put in the question, do we really believe it works? And here's a question for you. It, he told us, hey, we should be praying for everyone. We should be praying for all people. So here's, here's a question for you. We do this all the time here. Who are you praying for? If you can't just pop out names, like here, here are the people that I'm praying for right now, praying that they would come to know Jesus. If you can't say that, then, then I would say, hey, you need to boost it up a bit. We, we need to activate our prayer life because that is where the real power is. That is what Paul is telling Timothy. Hey, you need to be people of prayer. First and foremost, you should be people of prayer. So who are you praying for? Because Paul goes on in verse uh, 3 and he says this, this is good, right? The whole prayer, thing. this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This is how, I'm sorry, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So what pleases God? Prayer right? Specifically, our prayer and our prayer for other people. Uh, God, wants us all, God wants all people to be saved. And the gospel, the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the story of the salvation that we find in Jesus, that has the power. Romans says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And for us, praying for people and sharing that gospel message is paramount. So who are you praying for and who are you sharing the story with? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Now, Paul dives deeper into this idea in verse 8. And he says, therefore, right? So he says, hey, prayer is the most important thing and pray for everybody, including those people you don't like. And then he says, now he dives in and he says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So since the message of Jesus is top priority, so should prayer also be. And Paul gives this universal command for men to pray. He says, hey, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up hands, right? Lifting up hands was a common way for um, men, especially for Jewish um, rabbis and leaders to pray. Paul says, hey, now I want everybody to do that. I want everybody to have the posture for For them, that posture of prayer with hands up and palms out, that was a typical prayer posture for them. For us, it might be, you know, bow your head and close your eyes, right? That's what we were taught. Um, but for them, this, like, this was the posture that they always had in prayer. And I, and I love that because it can be a sign of surrender as well as receiving. And I think this was just the posture they, that they had towards God. 
And he says, hey, I want men everywhere to do this. And so Paul goes on to make sure that they are reverent, that there is no anger or arguing um, during, during prayer. I mean, you, you have to understand, when, last time Paul was in Ephesus, a riot broke out, right? There, there was a lot of arguing, a lot of stuff going on. Paul says, hey, I, I just I, there shouldn't be arguing, there shouldn't be all this debating, there shouldn't be, like, this is time for prayer, and, and remember, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. If you have a wrong attitude towards others, it will impair your prayer life, Scripture tells us. And, and so there will be time. There will be time for study, for debate, for, uh, you know, back and forth on what, what the Scriptures mean, all those things. But in prayer, we all come together. It's really, really hard to hate somebody you're praying for. And he told us already, pray for everybody. Pray for everyone. Um, even the crazy king, right? Um, now, since our top priority is prayer, we should show it the respect that it deserves. Prayer reminds us that it's not about us, that it's all about him, and that it reminds us how much we need him. And that's where our focus should be, is on him. Now, after he instructs the men... Okay. He says, hey, I want men everywhere to lift up and pray with holy hands lifted up. He, he has some instructions for the women in the church as well. In 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but to, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, I, I, I don't think, you know, okay, you, you, you have to go take off all your jewelry or do whatever, right? And, and, and we have to have hair inspections and stuff. But there are some places where, man, they take these things and they get too legalistic and everything with them. So where he told the men, here's where, here is where I think this, this connects. Where he told the men, right, to be prayerful, lifting up holy hands, not arguing, not disputing, where he's basically saying, hey, guys, it's not about you. It's about the prayer, Right? I think he's kind of saying the same thing here to the, to the ladies. He says, hey, it's, it's not about you. He's basically reminding them, hey, it's not about you. Don't, you're not here to draw attention to yourself. You're here to give attention to the Lord. You're not here to, you know, just wear fancy clothes so you'll get noticed or, or show off any kind of worldly wealth. We want, he wanted them to remember that their identity does not come from the way they look or what they wear. Their identity solely comes from the fact that they are children of God. That they are valued because they are children of God. And that, that they should stand out, not by the outward stuff, but by an inward life and the way that they serve. A, a city In a city of wealth, in a city where the main religion worship there is the goddess of fertility, you can imagine all of the stuff going on in that city. And Paul is saying, hey, we, we don't need to look like the rest of the world. We don't need to worship like the, like the people do who are worshiping other things. Don't seek attention and, and don't look like the rest of the world. And he says the guiding principle, I, I think the guiding principle still applies today, right? This is not about us. Being here today and, and, and being here to learn and listen, this is great. But it's really at the core, it is not about us. It is about Christ, our Savior, Okay, so now we get to some of the more controversial texts, all right? I know some of you are waiting for this. So it says, uh, so we're going to just take them one at a time. Now, I will preface it with just this one thing. Um, this will not be an exhaustive look at gender roles in the church. Um, we, we don't have time for this. Even if I just spent the whole time on just these couple verses, we, we don't have time. This needs to be an ongoing conversation. Uh, and I truly do believe this. And I, and I appreciate that. And first, remember, remember this. These verses, they're not isolated from the verses we just read, right? They're, they're in the same thing. They're in the same chapter, and they, they need to be seen in totality. We always run into a problem where we just poke out or pull out text to try to proof text something or say, hey, this is what I want it to mean, um, you know, connected to, to others, and then we go connecting our own dots. That, that's not the way to do this. So that's why we work through books of the Bible, right? And so remember, they're not isolated. The entire chapter is on how we demonstrate the gospel, how we live out the gospel in the life of the church. 
And the verses we just read about men and prayer and women and modesty are connected here. Now, there's, I will say this, like I said before, there's considerable debate about whether these verses are addressing specific issues to the Ephesian church and to that church solely that, that applies just to them and their context, that their cultural context of the day, or if they're general principles that are universal to the church both then and now, both here and both there. And so I tend to agree with what I feel is the majority of Christian scholarship, okay, um, that the answer is yes, that Paul was certainly addressing some specific issues to the Ephesian church, but there's also some principles that are for the church both then and now, not just for the church in 65, you know, AD in Ephesus. And there are some brilliant, and, and trust me, if you want to dive in deeper, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there, and I will give you stuff on all sides of this. Um, there are brilliant men and women scholars who would disagree with me, and, deep, and I totally deeply respect their views and love the fact that we can wrestle uh, together on this. Now, it starts by addressing men everywhere, and then women. Um, was, was there a problem in Ephesus? Yes. Um, but it was uh, it was for others, so excuse me. But it was for not only them, but I think there, it's for us as well today. Prayer and modesty in dress are still things I think that could be practiced in the church. The Corinthian church received some very similar statements, also. So I think um, I think that we um, we don't want to fully isolate this issue. So um, the, while the a gospel-centered church is one that prays. I think a gospel-centered church is also one, and I chose this word, is a church that protects, right? And, and I'll unpack that a little bit. In 1 Timothy 2.11, it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, oftentimes our thoughts go straight to the words quietness and submission, and we see the negative aspects of that. We, we, but what we do if we do that is we miss an amazing truth that God has for women. At the very beginning, it says a woman should learn. Now, you, you need to understand, we take, in our culture today, we take for granted uh, education that's available for, for women today, right? In, in Timothy's day, this was not the case. Women, in this day and age, were oftentimes treated as second-class citizens. Rabbis in the Jewish culture, they taught it was better to burn the Torah than to teach a woman. A, a, a devout rabbi would never be caught talking, especially alone to a woman. That's why Jesus' disciples are absolutely shocked when Jesus is found sitting at a well talking to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Socrates? Socrates taught that women were created halfway between a man and animals and had inferior minds. That was the like, that was the like tone of the day, right? So, but Jesus, here's what I love. Okay, um, for people especially who think you know that Christianity like downplays women or whatever, Jesus shattered those ways of thinking. During his ministry, um, he he treated women the way he treated women was absolutely revolutionary in the time. He treated women with value, dignity, respect, and equality. Jesus intended them to have, um, uh, or, or he uh, he. God intended them to have divine, uh, sorry, God intended them to have his divine image and the, for them to bear that alongside of men. And we want to be a church that protects that, right? We want to protect the fact that everyone is created in the image of God and that we all, we are all here to serve him. There are several places where women like Mary, the sister of Martha, are learning from Jesus right, which would have been unheard of in that day since Jesus was a rabbi. There's other places where women are teaching and where their leadership is acknowledged in different places. Now, learning in quietness, as it suggests here, women should learn in quietness, is not a bad thing. Remember, in verse 2 uh, of our chapter here, it said that we should all be living quiet lives, right? We, we all need to learn in quietness. We all need to do that. I mean, in fact, you guys are always way too quiet on Sunday mornings, right? So, right, Kat? They're way, you guys are way too quiet, right? The, the pastor needs some help sometimes. So, um, but we should have, I, I think a better reading um, would be that women should learn with, uh, um, 
with a quiet and teachable spirit, right? Women in the Ephesian church heard Paul's letter as part, when they heard this letter, they heard it as part of the main church gathering, not standing in the periphery like they used to do, but in most first century, with most first century cultures. But they were invited in and they were encouraged to learn. So it teaches that, and we want to protect those things. I don't think this, it does not teach that women in general must submit because it it talks about should the the, the women should learn in full submission. I don't think it means that they must in general submit to men in general speaking, okay? It's just we're supposed to submit, right? Be in full submission to God's word. Now, this is where the water keeps getting a little deeper, right? We start in the shallow end. We're just getting deeper as this whole thing goes, okay? So verse 12 says this, okay? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, here's the thing that I, I think is true. When, when God says, um, thou shalt not, right? Whenever there's something that says, hey, you're not supposed to do this, our natural response, we push back immediately, right? I think we need to, we need to like just kind of, okay, Let's not just push back immediately. Let's see. Let's take a look and see what he has to say. When in God's word he says no, I don't. God's not just randomly saying, "Hey, don't do this," right? God's not just saying no for some arbitrary reason or because he's just a god of that's just controlling everybody, right? That that is not the way this works. Okay, I think when when God says no in any way, shape, or form, he is always protecting us. He's protecting us from something, and he might be protecting something. When there are prohibitions in Scripture, we need to ask, what is God protecting, right? Because God wants our best. That's what we have to have in our mind all the time. God's never doing something that's not in our best interest. So he's either protecting something or is he protecting us. Now, when he says you shall not commit murder, what's he doing? He's protecting life. When he says you should not commit adultery, it's protecting marriage. So every time we see God say, hey, don't do that, we shouldn't immediately wince and go, oh, man, that's bad. No, we should take a deep dive in and look and say, oh, what's, what's God up to here? That's a much better approach, right, than just immediately pushing back. A majority of Bible scholars I read feel that this entire section has to do with the orderliness of public worship. And it means that, that women were not allowed to teach in the worship service and that this was not saying that women could never teach anywhere, okay? Just not in the context of the worship service. And, and they should not assume authority over men. The word for assume authority means to domineer or to grab at leadership, right? They shouldn't just be like grabbing at it, right? In fact, but the disciples actually get in trouble for this too, if you remember. Remember the, the, where, when Jesus, said, right around the Last Supper time, they were all arguing over who was the greatest, who's going to, who's leading, who's in charge. Especially like if something happens to Jesus, who's in charge? And Jesus comes and goes, "Oh, you knuckleheads!" Right? He's like, because biblical leadership is not about who's on top, right? Biblical leadership is not an org chart. Biblical leadership is not about that. Some people think that this passage should be better translated, I do not currently permit women to teach. And I dove in, I looked at all kinds of resources on that, um, because that one's a little popular um, these days, and and and, and that it was just for that time and that context in the early church. As I dove into that, um, I can understand where they see it, but I, I do believe there's some translation issues, right? that it just, it's a stretch to move the, the biblical Greek into that direction. And so it's really hard to, to, to say that. Um, it, he moves on, okay, and, and I'm going to tie some of this together in just a second. In 1 Timothy um, 2, 13 and 14, it says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. It, it, by the way, it's not saying that Adam wasn't a sinner, right? Because we know he did as well. But here's the interesting part that I think is really important for for our study. It's the little word, and little words in the Bible sometimes have a a lot of deep meaning. As he starts off verse 13, he has this little word for, F O R, right? It comes from a little Greek word, three letters also, G A R, gar, okay? And and the word the word for, it could be because, right? It could be translated because. 
And, and, and it's important for this reason, okay? It makes this difference. In the Greek structure of the sentence, this word coupled with the imperatives of the, of the um, verse above that say, I do not permit or I do not permit um, the women to teach or assume authority, there's some imperative words in there. And in the Greek language, when you have this little word gar and attached to those um, imperative words, that it creates what's called a causal statement, which basically means what, what he's saying is, is I do not per- permit the woman to teach or assume authority over the man. She needs to be quiet because, right? Okay, and, and a lot of times in a lot of the, in fact, in a lot of the commentaries, unfortunately, that I that read, they kind of discount it and they almost try to separate these two things and make verse 11 and 12 stand alone. But, but it really isn't. This verse, this, this thing where he starts talking about Adam and Eve, he says, hey, here's the cause. In other places, Paul does say, hey, the cause, the cause for this is the problem that we're having in town, right? And, and, and he uses some of the cultural things. And there are times when, yes, the culture demands an answer, the culture is part of the problem, or, or things like that. In here, I think the structure of the way that this is written says, hey, um, I mean, some people see the cause of Paul saying women cannot teach was mainly caused by the cultural issues. There are certainly cultural things going on, but other scholars point out the fact that Paul, however, anchors these commands in the more timeless narrative of creation. And and I just, my personal feeling as I've just like labored over this is that I, I tend to agree with that. And the fact that Adam was formed first does not make Adam better than Eve. I think we need to get that straight, right? Just because he was made first doesn't make him better. It doesn't make Eve inferior. In fact, when Adam was created alone, there was a problem, if you remember. If you go back to Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good. It's the first time that phrase is said, right? The first thing that's not good is Adam is alone, and he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Man had no one to have community with or relationship with, and Adam cannot fulfill his role completely on his own, right? And, and so when we, see the word, when we see the word helper there, that where it says that God said, I'll make a helper suitable for him, somehow, and I think it's our issue in our English language, right, we immediately think of assistant, right? Like the helper is the assistant. And that really doesn't do this justice. It's not, it's not what it means here. In fact, the only other places that that same um, wording is used uh, on talking about helper is when it's used to talk about God as our helper. And certainly, certainly God is not our assistant, right? So helper is not someone who is lower on the org chart, right? Helper is somebody who comes along and completes. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of this. It tells us in Genesis 127, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is what I think is amazing. There is beauty in both the similarity and there is beauty in the differences. Adam and Eve equally bore the image of God. They're both similar and they're different. They're equal, yet they're distinct. They are equal in worth and image bearers, and we must protect all of that. But they're distinct. I believe they're distinct in gender and in role. And I believe that we need to protect and value all men and women and the equality God gives us as image bearers of God. But we should also protect the beautiful differences and the uniqueness because we need each other. God said so at the beginning. It's not good for somebody, for us to be alone. But we live in a world that's trying to wipe out anything that's different. We, we're, we're living in a world that tries to like work towards homogeneity of everything. And, and that takes away the beauty that God created in the differences. And I think the differences are supposed to be absolutely celebrated. They're not things that we just look at and, and the differences are not wrong, bad, inferior, or anything else. They are things that are beautiful. They're things to be celebrated. He goes on in Genesis 1.28 after it says we're created in his image. And he says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, right? And you can read the rest later. But it says, I, I think it's important to note this. Who did God bless? 
He blessed them, right? Not just him, okay? Not just her. He blessed them. And he said to them, right? So the command was, be fruitful and increase in number. That is something they could not do on their own. Doesn't matter how hard they try. Doesn't matter how hard they want to. They can't. It is the beautiful difference that's in there that causes them to be able to actually live out the command that God gave them. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. Like, I can't do everything myself. I would be stupid to try, right? And, and even, even in my marriage, right? It's like I, I, need, I desperately need Brenda and her giftedness. I need, I need the differences that she has, and I need to celebrate those things. I need to honor those things in, in her words, and I also need to cherish those things. And, and, and I think it's so important that we do that. We live in a world that doesn't do this well. We live in a world that wants to say that all of these differences should, differences should push us apart. All these differences should be bad. All these differences should be things that we, you know, argue and beat each other up over. And the reality is, is that is not true. These are things that we need to celebrate. We need to show the world how this is done, folks. The world is not doing well at this. I mean, they, they don't know how to have some of these discussions and to do it in a way where we can honor one another and protect the image-bearing personhood of everyone. The world just doesn't know how to do this and they don't know how to deal with difference very well. We should be leading the way in this. And so God blesses them and then he commands them to subdue the earth and rule over it together, right? Now, it's important, in, in, in verse 14, he goes on, and um, I'm going to have to speed up just because of time. He says, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, it, it was not that Adam did not sin, okay? Um, he certainly did. Um, it was just that she sinned first, right? And again, order doesn't make somebody better or worse, right? Just like in the, just because man's created first doesn't make him better or worse, just, just, I mean, they're both sinners, right? In fact, if you look do, for a steady study of Scripture, you'll find out that Paul doesn't even mention Eve's sin when in Romans chapter 5, he basically tells everyone, Adam brought sin into the world, which I think is quite interesting, right? Same guy, okay, writing, he just says, he doesn't even mention Eve's sin in that spot. He just says, Adam was the one who brought sin into the world, and one of the things that I think is really important to note here is that, because I, I go back and, and a lot of Bible scholars look at this and say, yeah, when sin entered the world, like, where was Adam? <laughs> right? Where was he? Where, if, 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 remember, they were supposed to go together. It was a them thing. They were supposed to be subduing the earth together. And instead of subduing, instead of ruling over, instead of telling the serpent no, right? Instead of ruling over that, the serpent ends up, ruling over them. Many Bible scholars that I read note that this is that one of the, the problems in this is that Eve, at the moment in, in creation, usurped Adam's role of leadership and that that was the problem. And she led them into sin, right? But Adam abdicated his role. He, I mean, he was, he was asleep at the wheel at, at the very least, Right? And it's like, no, like, they need to do that. They need to be there protecting one another. And he abdicated his role. And when we live contrary to our God-given roles, we suffer consequences. And sin is not far behind. We need to champion the differences. We need to champion, I think, the church, um, because we can go to these two extremes. And, what, and this is exactly, I think, what the devil does. He pits us against each other in the little ways that he can, and he starts pushing us apart. And then we start squabbling and arguing over stuff that we don't need to. I believe we need to champion the women in our church family in the, and their giftedness. Um, and, and have them in places in the church where they are using their gifts to lead. Um, and, and, and I would say that men, we need men who will lead as well and not abdicate, okay? Guys, don't be asleep at the wheel at the church or at home. I mean, I think nobody needs that. It, it's never going to end up good. Biblical leadership is not bound to status, but to service. 
It's about laying down our lives, our pride, our rights. It's about laying all that down to serve one another faithfully. It is the fall, it is at the fall, after sin happens, that dominance, superiority, and those things rear their ugly heads and put tension into the relationships. There's never, ever an excuse for abuse of leadership roles, especially in the church. And the church leaders are called to help the members use their God-given gifts, whatever they are, to help build the church. And we desire to see every person, male and female, using their gifts in ministry. Now here we have seen through Scripture uh, um, that, that the role of pastor and elder are reserved for men. We think that that's a biblical model. I know there's people that disagree with that and people that I respect disagree with that. And, and I think that that's okay. Um, it's just at now, it's the way that we understand Scripture. Um, there's this last verse that I've got just a second um, to, to touch on real briefly, okay? Um, and again, this is, I'm not trying to solve the whole problem today, Right? But there's this little verse at the end that says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. There's a lot of people that won't touch this verse because it's pretty confusing, right? Um, I mean, it, it does, it, does it mean that, oh, man, if you don't have a child that, you, that you're not saved? No, that's certainly not the case, right? But remember back, it, it, here's one way that I, I thought it was interesting, and, and one person, I, I kind of like the way that this tied together. Back in chapter 1, remember when Paul says he was the worst of sinners, right? And he was the worst of sinners, but Christ came for sinners, right? Christ came to save sinners. Well, here's Eve, right? And she was the first of sinners, right? But she's also one that is given an incredible promise. And her incredible promise back in the garden was this. The incredible promise was that one day through her lineage, right, through her childbearing, through that line, that one day the Savior would be born. Which I love because her being the first of sin does not disqualify her from participation in the overall in the overall story of what God is doing. In fact, what I love about it is the very reality that she was sinful, okay, brought her into this place where now she's the one that has given this incredible promise. And we need to remember that sin never disqualifies us, right? Sin doesn't disqualify us. Sin is taken care of at the cross. That Jesus came to take that away, whatever it is. And once you've come to Jesus and you've allowed him to take your sin, then that sin no longer disqualifies you from serving in the church. It doesn't disqualify you from being an image bearer of God. There's also, I think it was interesting, I read so many articles on this. There's a really interesting and powerful corrective um, that the people in Ephesus at the time were worshiping Artemis who said she was the goddess of both life and death. But this corrective is basically saying, no, Jesus, the one who will come, the Messiah, he is the author of life and death. He alone is the one that can save. It's not Artemis. God has the power. But it's only when we faithfully serve him, when we submit to him, when we understand that it's not about us, it's about him and what he's done for us. And so I know this morning, maybe for some of you, I've muddied a lot of the water and that's okay. Um, I, I wanna encourage you, keep, keep swimming um, and, and we'll keep the conversation going because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot for us to understand about how this works. But most of all, I, I want us to be a church that first of all, stands on God's word church that prays because we're told that's what's most important and the church that protects every single person and the image of God that they bear and, and protects the fact that they are gifted the people sitting right next to you man they are gifted and we want everyone the church suffers when some people don't use their gifts and we want everyone men women we want everyone to use their gifts to serve in the kingdom of God because that's how God designed it. And that's 
how we work together to build the kingdom, to build a church that's shaped by the gospel. And that gospel message is that Jesus, our Savior, came and he sacrificed himself for us. As you remember, uh, biblical leadership is not about status. It's about serving. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross. At the cross, Jesus laid everything down. He laid his life. He laid his rights as the Son of God. He laid everything down for you and for me. And that's what this communion reminds us of. And this little piece of bread, it represents Jesus' broken body that he gave for us to save each and every one of us. So let's take uh, the bread together. And then there's the cup that represents Jesus' shed blood with which he forgave our sins. And at the foot of the cross, every single one of us are children of God. So let's take that and celebrate that together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And Father, we need you. We need you to help us in our understanding of it. We, we need you to help us, Father, in the way that we live it out. Father, I, I pray continually for wisdom from your Holy Spirit to help us learn how we take your word and how we put it into practice, Father. And, we, and we don't just talk about it, but God, we, we truly find ways to, to work it out in the, the day-to-day lives in in our homes, in the church. Father, I I just pray, Lord, that you'll make us a church that absolutely honors you with the way that we approach your word. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Father, to be people of prayer. And I I pray, Father, that you would help us, Father, to, to always hold fast to your truth and protect those around us as as image bearers of the King of Kings. God, thank you that we can be your children. Thank you that you save us. Father, use us, mold us, shape us. Help us to keep growing, Father, um, until you come again. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.